Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. (laughs) G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. And as well as acknowledging the great support provided to this podcast by the esteemed Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU, can I also thank Dr. Virginia Marshall for guest hosting in this role over the last couple of weeks while I left the chilly and landlocked capital for tropical Port Douglas. Amazingly, it's amazing anyone can travel at the moment. But I kept my eyes and ears open as to what was going on in Canberra and in politics more broadly, so I've learned that what wasn't a race became a gold medal race, that lockdowns were unnecessary and heavy-handed, but then they became prudent and perhaps the only tool in the box. And since then, we're back to seeing them as excessive and that we need to stop living in a cave. There's also been a bit of a roller coaster ride, of course, on vaccines. AstraZeneca was demonised, then lionised once again. And yet still some vulnerable Australians in groups 1A and B are not sufficiently protected. And JobKeeper was closed off, but payments are in many cases quite similar. Following this too closely may lead to a form of madness, I'm convinced. I'm really glad to have with me today, albeit from our respective home studios, otherwise known as lounge rooms, David Spears and Dr. Maria Tafaga. Hello. On maternity leave, Maria is a democracy sausage staple, of course. She's also a lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. And of course, David Spears is a multiple award-winning journalist, former president of the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery and host of Insiders. Welcome back to both of you. Great to be here. Hi, how are you? Good to hear your voice, Maria, particularly. I haven't spoken to you for a while. Um, I guess you've been enjoying the life on the other side of the border in Queanbeyan, just outside of the ACT. So That's right. Uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a longer and different lockdown to you. <laughs> That's right. It's <laughs> right. I've, been, I've been enjoying John Barillaro's um, uh, discussion about um, Canberrans secretly sneaking over our borders and, and, and pooing in our sewage systems. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's been great. He's here. on the case. Really yes. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the more bizarre stories in a particularly bizarre world. Uh, our experience was quite interesting too in this kind of multi-jurisdictional Australia we have because um, we left on the 11th of August uh, and uh, made it to Port Douglas to uh, your land in Cairns. And um, that was the day that a lockdown in Cairns lifted. So we got there after that lockdown lifted. That was kind of calculated. But the next day, infections, you may recall, turned up in the ACT. And so a couple of days went by and then we received the message that because you've been in the jurisdiction that is now regarded as a hotspot to with the ACT, by then there were sort of you know 10 or 12 infections showing up. Um, you need to home isolate. So, you know, what the, you know what was going to be a holiday on some other grounds uh, turned out to be uh, spent in, in home isolation, although I've got to say uh, if you're going to do home isolation, uh, Port Douglas is vastly preferable to Canberra <laughs> at this time of year. What are you saying about our weather, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> well, put it this way, I, I came back recently. Last night it was minus two at night time. What I've been experiencing is um, is kind of, you know, somewhere around 21, 22 as the minimum and somewhere around 25 to 27, 28 being, you know, the maximum. It's very stable up there, uh, perhaps a little uh, nippier here. And I don't mind saying I prefer the warmer it's exhilarating, Mark. It's exhilarating. Yes. You always have, mate. You, you endure Canberra, but uh, we know where your heart lies. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Um, now, look, one of the things that's been is- interesting, I think, over the last couple of weeks, uh, David, has been the, the kind of shift in the Prime Minister's messaging in, in the sort of language he's using and the forcefulness or the confidence with which he's putting it. Now, armed with this uh, modelling from the Doherty Institute, uh, which uh, you know sort of attempts to tell us what the situation would be with uh, levels of vaccination of seventy and eighty percent of the adult population, it should be said, um, and what this might mean in terms of freedoms uh, or restrictions that we've all become sadly too used to. Uh, the PM's really sort of toughened his language. So as I was saying before, we've you know been through a bit of a roller coaster in terms of understanding whether lockdowns were necessary or not. It wasn't that long ago, June, in fact, that he was praising Gladys Berejiklian for resisting going into lockdown. But since then, he's become a, an evangelist for, for sharp lockdowns as the, as the best first reaction to, to outbreaks. Um, but he's really toughened up his position since then to be talking about the future. Now, some of that has to be about giving us hope and targets and some prospect of what happens afterwards. Uh, but it has other people worried. I wonder what your assessment of it all is. Yeah, I mean, evangelist is a uh, an interesting word to use there because Scott Morrison so often does speak with such conviction when he put, puts his mind to something, such certainty, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, he is certain that this plan is going to work, that even with the high case numbers, we've got to move beyond lockdowns when we do get to um, well, at least the 80% of uh, adults being fully vaccinated. Uh, but, you know, you, you're right. And in your introduction, uh, you put it quite well in the way that he shifted on this. Now, why has he shifted? Well, we know intrinsically many on the Liberal side have uh, long hated lockdowns. And we can talk more about Josh Frydenberg as one of the driving forces and uh, you know, more strongly positioned uh, senior figures in the government when it comes to that view. 
but then when it became clear that this had been an absolute debacle in New South Wales, resisting a lockdown, waiting too long, delaying, only having a quasi-lockdown or mock-down, uh, as it was called, um, you know, it was just becoming a diabolical, not only um, practical and health problem, but political problem as well. It was plain for all to see that the lockdown was needed at that point. So then we saw the Prime Minister heavily swing in behind and say, the only way out of this is through lockdown, through an effective lockdown. He seemed to be even suggesting Gladys needed to go harder than she she was at that point. So he was then all on board, uh, as, as you suggest, with this whole um, lockdown cause. But but then, and it is it is notable, I think, that it's during a, a period where he's he's had a housemate at the lodge, none other than Josh Frydenberg, uh, over the course of uh, you know three, four, it'll end up being about five weeks. They're there together. He's really hardened his view that we've got to move beyond these lockdowns. We've got to end these lockdowns. Now, it is true that hope is needed. I you know I, I don't dismiss that. I think the, both the treasurer and the PM are right. Um, millions of Australians are despairing. We need to have some certainty that this will end. Um, and, and, and look, you know, the Doherty Institute are world class. They are best in their field in terms of doing the modelling on this. So that's hard to dispute as well. But I do think the certainty around this, the conviction around this is perhaps uh, a little misplaced. I mean, this virus is a very uncertain thing. We need to remain flexible as we go through what are going to be a very difficult few months of um, uh, you know, relaxing these restrictions, opening up while case numbers are still escalating. He seems to talk in inconsistent absolutes, you know, like, <laughs> and he's always said that as well, right? You know, like whatever he said, he's always said that. I, I think it's really interesting. He, t- From my perspective, it seems as if the Prime Minister has, he's sort of painted himself into a corner in a way because because of the failures of the vaccine rollout, he he is sort of wedged between the policy preferences of his party, which some of which are very uh, angry and annoyed, disappointed, frustrated uh, with him. And perhaps David, you know more about this than than us. Um, and then his own his own um, record, which on the sort of target that he set himself, the goal that he set himself at the beginning of the year, hasn't done very well. So his only real option is to sort of try to move forward. Mm. Um, and I do think it's really interesting that he does sort of kind of he, – he tends to go for messaging simplicity, which means that he then talks in absolutes. And just as you sort of said, David, he opens himself up to a lot of risk. When we look at like previous prime ministers, particularly very skilled ones, say John Howard, for example, like they always created space for themselves to, to manoeuvre um, because, you know, because of the level of uncertainty. And, and I think what is most interesting about these times is that, you know, the, the next election is predicted to be in March. That's, that's like over six months away. A lot can happen in six yeah. months. A lot can happen. I, look, I guess what's the alternative for him? I mean, politically at exactly. least, he's, he's in such a hole. He has been for months, right, because of the vaccine rollout. Uh, debacle, and he needed to shift the focus away from that, and his colleagues needed him to shift the focus away from that. They were headed in a terrible direction, so you can understand why he now wants to focus on the future to, to move beyond those failures in in the past. Um, but you're absolutely right; anything could happen. He might be right, and this might be the way to drive vaccination uptake and, and get rid of the hesitancy and get get things moving and opened up. He might be right, but he might also be very wrong, uh, and you know. Being too overconfident that this this plan will all be okay, that the hospital system in particular can cope, uh, and that it's okay to, to start opening up, and we won't really know, will we, until towards uh, the end of the year? So yes, 
there, there are big risks involved here, but you can sort of understand why he's willing to take them given the position that he's in. It's really fascinating when we think about, uh, you know, the, the comment that uh, the observation that Maria just made and, 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 and the ones that you're making there, David, about uh, his optimism and, uh, you know, that notion of hope. If we think about Boris Johnson, for example, in the UK, whose mistakes have, have made the mistakes here look piddling, really, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the early management of, and denial, really, of the virus and the threat and the level of it and, and the response needed and how long they let kept their borders open and so many other things. But the thing about Johnson that keeps his his prime ministership, you know, broadly legitimate in a democratic sense, that is that he maintains public support and leads the Labor opposition, it seems to be that his, his sort of failings are priced in and his sort of undeniable optimism all the time is kind of infectious. Uh, and one wonders whether Morrison doesn't, uh, you know, take a similar view that he's got to um, he's got to always look uh, like he's got a plan, like he's in control, even when he's in many cases all the way through this been slave to the variables of the virus and the political variables of the way the states are responding to it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've got to have a plan, right? Um, I, I, that, that's a fundamental in politics, but particularly during this pandemic. I've listened to a number of focus groups over the last. Uh, well, a few months, uh, and predominantly focus groups in um, Western Sydney where these hotspots are, the lockdowns uh, are hurting far more than, than anywhere else, I think, in the nation right now. And this constantly comes up. We're talking about folks who aren't following the intricacies of politics day to day. They just want to know that the bloke in charge has a plan to end this. Um, you drill down on that and they, uh, they're curious as to why the Prime Minister can't call the shots and it's the Premier's and so on. But Really, they know that the, the guy who's in charge is the Prime Minister ultimately and they want to see a plan from him. So that that's something we, we see, we're seeing him respond to, no doubt about it. The Boris Johnson uh, comparison is an interesting one, right, because he arguably went even further than this opening, reopening roadmap. He set the Freedom Day, right, when, when restrictions would all largely drop. Now, that happened. There was a lot of criticism and concern about d- doing that uh, and we did see a, an uptick in cases and we still have uh, I remember looking a couple of days ago, they were, they were still recording what was it, 100 and then 133 deaths a day. But is this okay? I mean, this is the sort of uh, you know, um, root equation that we're, we're all having to weigh at the moment. What can well, these, we- these, these countries have different baselines. Uh, the countries that have done very poorly in the early phase of the pandemic response have an, have an entirely different sort of socio-political baseline for what constitutes success and 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 a lower tolerance for restrictions on freedom so that it it's interesting that it's just changed the dynamics so much those countries think of the us and the uk and a number in europe that had very high uh infection and death rates um became perhaps a bit more used to that they then that then reflected in much more rapid uptake of vaccines there was a sort of uh you know we saw emergency accreditation of those vaccines sorry about vincent in the background i'll have to deal with that in a moment um there was much higher uh sort of um 
urgency in their vaccination programs and that's one of the criticisms you could certainly make in Australia was that lack of urgency but also there is there is a, a greater sense that they, they don't they haven't been to zero like we have they haven't had months where there weren't community infections we had more than a year in the ACT for example with no community infection at all uh, they haven't had that and so they don't expect that level and it's changed we can see this playing out even within our own country of course with uh, places like WA that have zero community infection Infection and just have no appetite at all for uh, for um, uh, lifting restrictions. Whereas in New South Wales, you know, you're getting more than a thousand cases a day, a handful of deaths every day, and you know the, the polls are clear, and I think it's un- undeniable that there is uh, still a clamour to open up. Uh, you know, once they do get that vaccination rate up, so it is even. You're right within uh, Australia's borders, a, a very different. Uh, political situation in in the non-COVID states, the COVID-free states, to the lockdown states, and this is the this is the uh, you know the, the the high wire act that I think both the prime minister and the opposition leader have to uh, tread because they need to appeal to both those constituencies, and there it's a very different political climate in the COVID-free states and the lockdown states. I, I think it's I think it's quite interesting um, the sort of political difficulties of of Morrison's sort of situation like you know he he sort of emphasized that the Doherty modeling which is just modeling and which only predicts which only models actually six months um and I think in some of those scenarios it, it doesn't even model the peak of infections um but he he's used the word safe and I just wonder if this is sort of um like you know it's a race or I don't hold a hose something that will come to um haunt him in the in the future because he's sort of betting against um, you know, uh, biology basically, and I I do wonder like he sort of set himself another goal that he would probably have to be extraordinarily lucky to realistically be able to meet without um, causing a level of consternation in the community, which you guys have sort of alluded to, right? Like the appetite for risk in this country is a lot lower. People have been living much safer lives. People are are effectively um, kind of grieving the fact that they don't have COVID zero anymore and that's not an option for them anymore because of what has happened in in New South Wales. And, and some people are obviously desperate to get out of this situation and there's lots of polling around. But I think I think actually I don't think people have fully digested what the potential scenario uh, is because I think the conversation in this country up until very recently has been vaccinations mean we'll be safe from the virus. But actually the overseas experience shows is that it's a different kind of risk. It's different sets of risks. Um, and, it, and, and this is not the end of the story. Yeah, and I, I think that's true. I think that's true. But then, I, you know, you've always got to think, what's, what's the alternative? What should they be doing? Exactly. Um, is, is it is it emphasising, perhaps more than they are, that once we get to these points, we're still going to require all sorts of other restrictions to remain. We're still going to have real pressure on our hospitals. We're still going to have uh, you know, a certain amount of fatalities as well, emphasise more than perhaps they are, uh, what these ongoing problems are going to be rather than the sunny uplands of, um, of hope that uh, is being presented right now. But yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I do think it's fair enough, though, to get some modelling from a, from a group like Doherty uh, and to try at least to get the, the disparate state leaders around a plan. I do think that's a worthy ambition and, and something. Look, the Prime Minister, we, as we've said time and time through this pandemic, is limited in his powers constitutionally. But people want him to be able to at least corral some sort of agreement. So I do think it's worthwhile doing this. 
But to your point, I think it's right that uh, it, you know we can't pretend that this is all going to be easy and um, uh, you know uh, positive once we hit that vaccination point. There are still going to be issues that we're going to have to live with. Yeah, and there are going to be political negatives about it as well. Um, you, you may recall, David, I think you and I spoke about this on Insiders a few weeks ago. Uh, the you know you just mentioned the the national cabinet and the idea of getting everyone on the same page about this, understanding the the goals of of uh, you know releasing restrictions, even if that is done in a very sort of staged and graduated process. But one of the things we were discussing then was uh, back then was that. Um, the national cabinet is, uh, you know, it's a it's a construct, a political construct. Its legal force is somewhat less convincing, and there are always the, the uh, COVID has shown us perhaps more than anything in an acute sense, anyway, uh, that, that that any of us can remember has shown us the uh, that the local political imperatives will trump those national considerations for for state and territory leaders. They will move to protect their populations where they uh, are expected to do so by their electors and we've seen voters lining up very very strongly behind premiers the the stronger they they are seen to be in standing up for the protection of their populations uh, in some cases directly against the, the national government which is why my expectation <laughs> really is and look we'll see what happens my expectation is that, that will remain the case uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk and Mark McGowan have not lost a vote uh, by taking a hard line on protecting their people, uh, whether it's through border closures or other measures, and whether it's through having a fight with the Prime Minister. That has not cost them one bit. Uh, it, it has been the, 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 the fuel behind their political success since this pandemic began. So are they really going to change tack now? Of course not. Look at Anastasia Palaszczuk over the last week. You know, she seized the opportunity on a couple of consecutive days, one to announce the quarantine centre out at Toowoomba that the Prime Minister has refused to fund. And, you know, sure, there are questions as to whether international flights will go in there or whether they're still going to have to bus COVID patients all the way to Brisbane, all, all of the, you know, uh, logistical issues there. But she's done it to make a political point uh, that the Prime Minister doesn't get it and she does. Uh, and the other thing she did was to stand at the pub and say, you know, we're relaxing a few rules, but made the very clear point standing in front of the bar that, you know, we're open, life is normal, we got zero COVID, isn't life great in, in Queensland? Why would we risk what the Prime Minister's suggesting we risk in this reopening plan uh, and letting New South Wales' COVID cases come across the border? So I suspect they continue down that path, right? I don't see a political imperative for them to shift, uh, but equally... It's very clear that Gladys Berejiklian's course is set here too. She must reopen when they get to that 80% uh, fully vaccination of adults uh, mark. You know, there's there's no um, path other than that for her. Uh, so I, I expect we're going to see divergence. I, I don't think we're going to see the nation move as one uh, beyond these uh, target points of vaccination. I mean, what what is really interesting about this, right, and, and you're right, like it, it's actually not realistic for us to sort of stay in a, in a COVID zero uh, space because that's just, we, you know, we can't like keep the borders shut for it well, indefinitely for, for a decade. And kids home from school and, and you know, businesses closed. Yeah, I mean, precisely, precisely. All of this is building up. The pressure is building up. Precisely. But what is interesting, I guess, to me is that, you know, Josh Frydenberg has been consistent that he is against lockdowns and he's, apart from these one moment of short, sharp lockdowns, according to Treasury modelling, is the best, he's not really flip-flop from that. Whereas the Prime Minister has changed positions on this subject 
many times. And <laughs> I guess I wonder, like he doesn't he doesn't get the leadership credits for that, you know? Like he 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 sort of he 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 follows public opinion on this issue. And so when the going gets tough in a few months' time, as it odds on will because of, you know, events that we can't foresee or just the predicted case level impacting public hospitals or, or whatever it is, what will he kind of do then? Like, I know he doesn't have an alternative, but like the way he has sort of chosen to kind of seize the agenda now, like, you know, I, th- I think, I think there's been a lot of, I guess, um, breathless coverage of the fact that he has re-seized the agenda, but I actually wonder if it is any different to what he has done in the past to re-seize the agenda. I, you know, boldly step towards the future, making these big absolutist claims, which he then, like, is effectively the prisoner of events and luck to deliver. Well, yeah, but the, the question is really, um, I, I think that that's absolutely uh, valid, that analysis, where, it, where I'm not sure it leads is, uh, is is in terms of his unpopularity because there's a lot of, as you say, a fair bit of breathless commentary about this and that uh, that goes on. But the polls, for the most part, seem to suggest that he maintains a pretty healthy lead as preferred prime minister. We know he's a, a Sharkies fan. He seems to have the, uh, albeit a, a convert later in life, but he seems to have the uh, the, the, the sort of political strategy or, or, or approach of just constantly moving forward, you know, that we're said to be the way a shark operates. Uh, and he's not particularly concerned with the rearview mirror. Uh, and and even, even if that means that there are some statements that when you line them up together, just don't seem to make sense. They seem to be contradictions. But I mean, we see this in politics quite a lot. There's this reliance on voters not having a particularly long memory. Only a couple of weeks ago, uh, Gladys Berejiklian lectured journalists at one of those tetchy um, 11 a.m. press conferences trying to explain what was happening in New South Wales on the basis that, well, we're the biggest and densest populated state. It was always going to be more difficult to uh, do this uh, with Delta. Delta was always going to be far more damaging in a state like New South Wales than it would be in some other places. Now, this was from a, a premier who had justified not going into lockdown early and fast, which that sounded like a very good argument for moving exceptionally quickly in New South Wales. She had moved slowly and incompletely, and yet some weeks later was lecturing us on why it was always the case and this wasn't actually a result of government failure. Yeah, and look, Gladys Berejiklian, you're right, has uh, lectured us on why curfews wouldn't work, why, you know, the, the 5K restriction, all, all of these measures that she she ultimately uh, had to had to do, um, she shifted on. But I think Maria's right that when we look, all politicians shift, right, uh, with events. But Scott Morrison, there's something, there's something about the frequency and the scale of his shifts, right, that, that I think leaves many in the shade, whether it's – let's just look at the context of this pandemic, uh, whether it was on state border closures, he was against them, then he backed them, uh, whether it was on the vaccine rollout, it's, it's not a race, it is a race. Uh, AstraZeneca, remember the late-night press conference about the Atagi advice and, you know, now we're going to uh, prevent anyone under 60 getting it. I mean, just this week he said in Parliament in relation to AstraZeneca – uh, we stood up for the AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, others sought to cast aspersions on not our government, Mr. Speaker, not our government. He said, uh, you know, and, and whether it's now on the the lockdown question as well. And as, as you began this <laughs> podcast by articulating, he was against them, for them, now against them. So he shifts. 
And when he does it, and coming back to what we were discussing, he does it with the conviction, with the certainty, with the evangelicalism that um, I, I think is is quite something, quite unlike most other leaders. Now, what does that mean will happen if we get to the point of reopening and the risks that we're all acknowledging are there uh, turn out to be, you know, it, it turns out to be a far worse scenario than the modellers at Doherty have suggested. If the hospitals are starting to fill right up, uh, if the deaths are, are, are deemed unacceptable, if, if this is too much for us to handle, what do we know of Scott Morrison? I think we can safely say that he will shift again, right? He will. Now, is this a bad thing? Arguably, no. It, it's, it's pragmatism. Does it hurt him politically, though? That is the unknown. Um, you know, can he uh, defend another massive shift if he has to away from this plan? Uh, or does he do it with the conviction that convinces people that, of course, this is the right way to go? This is the hard thing to read right now. I wouldn't say he's in a strong political position right now. Um, and who knows what will happen over the coming months. But I would put my money on this Prime Minister being willing to shift uh, however many times and however far he has to. I think you're right. I think that's probably what he'll do. And he does it uh, as much as it might infuriate a number of people and there'll be people listening to this podcast who will be infuriated by Scott Morrison because there are quite a few who are and there are others who support him. But uh, when, I, when I'm looking at this as someone who's watched politics for a long time, uh, I, see, I see some genuine skill in this, even though I have, as, as all of us do who, who follow politics professionally, I also see the contradictions and, you know, I, I marvel sometimes at the sheer sort of bald-facedness of, of, of those switches. Um, he said, for example, uh, you know, a month or two ago now, probably six weeks ago, I suppose, he said, uh, asked himself a question at a press conference. They're perhaps the ones he likes answering most. Uh, he's no, no orphan there in politics. But he said, what's changed? Delta. That's what's changed. Now, Delta had been around, called the Indian variant, um, for some time before that. Uh, we had known it was Well, it, just on that, Mark, he, that was, of course, the India outbreak that <laughs> prompted the Prime Minister to threaten jail for any Australian who did manage to find a way home. So it was, it was treated Perfect. very, very uh, seriously at that point. Yeah, that's right. And, and the whole you know, risk profile had always been about um, uh, girding against this virus and the best ways of handling it and you know, the, the, the vaccination program and the various other restrictions. In fact, the international border has been closed, as you say, uh, threats of, of jailing people and the like. It had, always, it had always been about that. So there's always been this kind of oil and water quality to, to it, uh, hard in one way and, and sort of almost, almost kind of denialist in another. Uh, and, um, you know, but as I say, the, the polls show that uh, at the moment, depending on which ones you read, of course, and we can come to that, but, but broadly speaking, his preferred PM rating remains fairly strong. Now, I know prime ministers tend to lead in, in ordinary course of events, tend to lead opposition leaders in that rating because you know, they're sitting in the job and the opposition leader struggles for the same level of attention and perhaps people have some trouble imagining the alternative in the role and those sorts of things. But um, the government's certainly not out of it. Uh, so there's plenty plenty of variation uh, variables in play. And as Maria says, we're, we're potentially six, seven months away from an election, so uh, a lot can change there. Yeah, I guess I guess to, to my, my point is that... Um, I guess like there has been this sort of sort of groundswell of coverage like you know this is a this is a brilliant move it may well be it's audacious there's no doubt about it and and you're right he has really few other choices 
But, um, you know, it's, it's actually quite possible that we get to November and December and we're facing, um, uh, you know, rising cases among certain groups. And once again, it will, the discussion will be about supply and the lack of supply. I guess, you know, he, he is, um, he is a very skilled politician in his ability to effectively, like, move on. But will but- it be about supply, really? I mean, I, I- hopefully not by then. I think there'll always be criticism that you know, we never got enough supply when we should have, right? And that, that sticks to Morrison. That's right. And that's one of those things that I think Morrison essentially relies on people putting the past behind them like he constantly does. Uh, and to a, to a significant extent they do. I mean, I know that I've had some feedback when when writing columns about this sort of stuff that you get some feedback on on social media, for example, of people saying, yeah, but what use is it blaming people we are where we are? And I think there is a sentiment out there about that. People tend uh, not to remember, you know, those those essentially wasted months through the second half of 2020 and significantly into this year where we just hadn't secured enough vaccine and where everything the government did was framed by that shortage, including and up, up until including right now the absence of any decent publicity campaign to really drive uh, vaccination enthusiasm amongst the population. And I think that accountability matters on such a big, big issue as failing to get enough supply in Australia. And, you know, I, I, I know people don't necessarily want us in the media to bang on and on and on about it, but, you know, it does still need to be pointed out. And when I interviewed the Prime Minister over a week ago um, on the show, you know, I, we were talking about the lockdowns and I wanted to put the question to him for the record one more time uh, that this was in large part because we were slow in getting the vaccination rate up. We didn't have the supply at the time. I know he doesn't appreciate those questions, but I do think it is important for accountability's sake uh, to to keep that, um, you know, to keep that question there and to um, remind people uh, where appropriate that this is why we are where we are. Can we just take a quick break there, Maria, and uh, come back and I'll pick up your point. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, sorry, Maria, I cut you off just before the break. What were you about to uh, say in response to that question about accountability and uh, you know, the vaccine shortage? And, and oh, I was just going to make a very, you know, political science nerd point, which Excellent. is, you know, of course, of course, accountability is important. I mean, you know, we did elect him after all. Otherwise, we may as well just be ruled by technocrats, which we kind of half are at the moment anyway. But I guess, you know, that, that is a really interesting point about the, the past um, and moving on from the past. 
but the, the next election is going to be about who do you trust with the future? And I, I, and I, I do think of, of um, all the politicians out there we've kind of seen, like, you know, audacity does pay off in this regard and, and people maybe move on. But I do wonder, like, given when we look at the Prime Minister's record, he's been in office for three years. He's had a couple of successes. But he's actually had a lot of um, implementation failures and he has had a, you know, and he is building up a reputation as someone who sort of says one thing but doesn't deliver, you know, and so – he he is really, I think, very vulnerable to this um, this attack. And whilst his audaciousness really does, um, he's very skilled at it and does work. Like every every time you do it, you do actually reduce your overall capital. You know, there, there has to be an end of the road for this. People will eventually stop listening. Does that happen at the next election? Or does that happen at the one after that? I don't know. But you know, it's not cost free. Yeah, and uh, you, you may know better than uh, better than I, Maria. But how much does the legacy of the, the previous term uh, weigh, and how much does it compare to what's being promised in the years ahead at an election? Because you're absolutely right. This is what it comes down to. Labor's task is to make the failures around the bushfires, around the pandemic, around issues around the treatment of women, make all of this stick to brand Morrison and be foremost in people's minds as they enter that. Uh, that ballot box because, you know, as we saw in 2019, I don't think Scott Morrison will go to this next election promising all sorts of change in the coming term should he be re-elected. You know, I I think the opportunity is there for Labor to remind people as much as they can, Um, but uh, ultimately will minds turn to who's going to do a better job of managing recovery and what remains of living with COVID, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know at this stage. It's it's yeah. there for both sides to argue. And I think that's actually the point about like in normal times, we kind of know what the next election will be about. It'll be about, you know, who's going to run the economy better? Um, can you trust Labor with government? No, you can't. Who's going to balance kind of the budget? No yeah, one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it actually, it will actually really depend on where we're at, what kind of pandemic we're living with as to like what's going to shape that debate like the 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 election might be who who can manage the the pandemic better like it might be about health i mean you know it it might be about budget repair many things could happen and so it's it is actually very difficult to predict um and and i think that's kind of goes to the point about these very mixed findings in the polls i think i think it it's not really clear i don't think exactly what australians think about all of this stuff because i don't think they actually understand the full problem set if that makes well if it's going to be sense. about budget repair it's going to be probably a pretty difficult one for whoever's arguing that that is such a, a mammoth task now look it may be about some incremental level of repair, but no one's going to be making the promise to drive the, the budget back into the black, as we've seen as an orthodox sort of claim in, in, in standard elections. I mean, it is so far away from that, so many years away from that as a result of all of this that it's fascinating to think how much that itself will change the dynamic. We just It's going to sort of, it, it sort of removes really the ability for either side to take a, a particularly a dramatic moral position on uh, on you know fiscal balance because uh, fiscal balance has been blown so so far you know, kicked so far down the road as a result of this pandemic and it's not over yet as we know uh, government closed off JobKeeper earlier this year at the end of March I think it was and um, we're now 
uh, back to paying a significant amount of money out, uh, the same level of payments, at least to some people. It's not going through employers and there are strong criticisms around that. But nonetheless, uh, this could go on for a significant period of time from here. So the situation's not getting better, it's getting worse. Yeah, and look, it, it, just to think about you know, what the next election might be about, I, I tend to agree. We really, we really don't know. We don't know where Australia is going to be in six months' time. I think it's more uncertain now than it you know, has been at any point since this pandemic began. I don't think budget repair is going to feature uh, in, the, in the talking points of either side uh, as much as it typically does, that's for sure. Um, but you know, what can the federal government and, the, and then the federal opposition uh, focus on in an election context. What can they actually control? Well, it's, it's a few things. It is support payments, and you know maybe we are going to be at a point where sectors of the economy, be it tourism, hospitality, the arts, are still going to require big dollops of federal assistance, and there might be some argument about that. I think the international border is going to be a really interesting one as well. I know it's not the biggest deal for all Australians, but for many it is. Uh, and certainly for the business community. So there may be some argument about how you approach the reopening there, what path you tread on, on reopening. Um, and universities. But re- yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Huge issue for universities. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the pandemic control has been at the state level. So, uh, you know, where does Labor go? I mean, there'll be things like, you know, we'll, we'll promise to build an mRNA facility or more quarantine facilities. I mean, they're the sort of things you would expect both sides to have up their sleeve to roll out and talk about during a campaign. But beyond that... You know, what will Labor focus on? Climate change, yes. Um, the health system might be a bigger deal for us in six months' time than it is right now, funding a, a better hospital and, and health system. Um, yeah, it is interesting to contemplate where the actual contours of the election debate will go. Yeah, it is fascinating, uh, particularly when we see stories in the last couple of days that the WA health system is already under pressure and is closing off some uh, elective surgery and, or, or you know, uh, delaying it to, to manage the demand on the health system in that state when it has literally no COVID uh, and the, the threat there being that the health system would fall over quite quickly uh, were it to deal with a significant outbreak, certainly anything of the scale that uh, New South Wales or even perhaps Victoria are dealing with at the moment. So you're, you're right. I mean, the, the issue of investment in the health system is uh, is potentially one of the uh, one of the bigger problems, one of the bigger challenges. Uh, the other one will be interesting to see will be whether uh, Labor's critique of Morrison, we've made various references to this, uh, Maria, but Labor's critique of Morrison as being a serial blame shifter and as being someone who's, whose standard sort of first instinct is always to, to deny and delay and therefore the solutions he brings to problems and the vaccines obviously are a glaring example, but you can even see it in the, in the, in the Afghanistan rescue that we, that we've just seen, uh, you know, play out and, and, and very tragically in, in recent days, um, uh, you know, that he, he denies things and, and, and blames others when they when when there are problems and then eventually whatever policy remedies are are hit upon are perhaps more costly and less effective as a result of how long they take it it's going to be interesting you know labor has this uh, you had two jobs mantra um, about the prime minister you know getting the getting the vaccines and and establishing a an adequate uh, quarantine uh, system um, you know it'll be fascinating to see if that narrative actually does cut through with voters. I think if Australia is doing well, um, Morrison's ability to look to the future will um, have 
a good chance of being successful and it will really be up to Labor to sort of spruik an alternative that's better. If Australia is not doing well, then I think Labor's ongoing critique might really find fertile ground. People might decide that the other lot might be better than than this current uh you know group that are in that are in office now and Can labor I- has moved quite uh, quite obviously to make the election about morrison rather than to make the election about labor's platform hasn't it yeah definitely and um and you know because they can sort of sense a, a a weakness um there um and and that actually brings me to a question that i really would like to ask uh david i mean if you know um what what is morrison's internal standing you know there's obviously a lot of um uh sort of rumblings um but you know like sometimes it's just two guys that can make it seem like there's an awful lot of displeasure yeah. in a political party a couple of things um i mean typically in any any government uh when times are good everything's great for the leader when times are bad they're under pressure um and you can track that as directly as as the the news poll line uh, would suggest um but there are a couple of differences right now I think Morrison is safer than you know. Even though um, his personal numbers are, are okay, the two party numbers are not. Um, but he's he's safe because, unlike Turnbull, unlike Abbott, he doesn't have uh, a rival. Um, you know, nipping at the heels. He doesn't have someone out there um, doing the undermining, the backgrounding, all the stuff that that goes on. Uh, he he genuinely does not. You know, Josh Frydenberg, I agree, is. Uh, now the, the, the pretty clear um, next in line, but he is a, a loyal deputy. Um, you know, the fact that they're spending five or so weeks together in lockdown at the lodge, I think will only strengthen it, inevitably will uh, strengthen the bond between them. Uh, sure, he's hugely ambitious uh, and will will want that job when it's, when it's time, but he is also uh, a loyal deputy to Scott Morrison. Peter Dutton, uh, the Conservatives' preference, uh, you know, I just... I think that time has passed. So, um, yeah, for, for that reason, I think Morrison is is safe. And you know, I think the colleagues in the in the coalition, the, the uh, government MPs, uh, you know, they don't even contemplate issues around changing leadership right now, uh, or at least not much. So, yeah, I think his his position is quite different to that of his immediate predecessors. Let's look at Labor then, um, because it's interesting. There was a fair bit of talk. I suppose there always is when you're an opposition leader. It's a hard job. You're not in power. Um, the party needs to believe that you have a chance at the next election. And uh, you know, there's been a fair bit of muttering about about uh, the leadership uh, over this over this term, uh, perhaps in the last year or so. But my sense is that that has also abated. That as the government has, as Morrison has come under the sort of pressure we've just been talking about, as the government has faltered, uh, Labor has been more focused as we've seen it's gone about stripping away some of the uh, the policy detail and boldness that it took to the 2019 election Albanese's uh, intent on making this election about Morrison's shortcomings and about what can be done to put those things right rather than uh, you know articulating a whole new vision for Australian transformation from the uh, vulnerable and you know the, the weakness of of opposition so uh, what do you both think about that? Is is Albanese now safe from from any sort of uh, challenge between now and the election? Well, I think you know, barring a uh, disaster, yes, I, I think he is. Last year was a different uh, situation. There was far more 
chatter going on. Uh, you know, there were names being discussed, uh, partnerships of leader and deputy, alternative leader and deputy tickets being discussed. Um, again, it comes down to how a party is, is tracking. And with Labor now uh, ahead for the last few months, that helps him enormously. Now, his own personal numbers, they're not great. Uh, people aren't you know, loving Anthony Albanese, they are unhappy with the Morrison government. Um, but whatever Labor's in front, uh, in the two-party sense, then sure, they're, they're going to they're going to stick with him. The only time we saw a leader, I from memory, uh, dumped when the party was ahead was was Kevin Rudd <laughs> when he was first rolled by by Julie Gillard. But for Anthony Albanese right now, you're right in your assessment, Mark, that he has streamlined the outfit, made sure this term is not about Labor. Uh, you know, got rid of those negative gearing, franking credit uh, policies that Bill Shorten uh, clung on to and that were costly for him in a political sense. Uh, he has narrowed the focus down onto the government's pandemic failures. Uh, he has been cautious on climate change. I think backing net zero when most of the world has and all the business groups are on board was a no-brainer, but he's very cautious on that midterm target still. So, you know, he very much wants all the focus to be on Scott Morrison, not on Labor. Um, and while, you know, some true believers might um, uh, feel queasy about that, I think if it means Labor is going to win an election, that will help a great deal. And do you think that midterm target uh, problem, because uh, let's remember Bill Shorten took a 45% cut by 2030 to the uh, last election. Um, Labor now points out that there's only, by the time we get to the election, there'll only be seven and a half years or so to 2030. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a target that Shorten had set, you know, in the mid teens, in the mid, in, in, in sometime between 2016 and 2019. Um, uh, there just isn't time to look at that kind of ambition. Will they go about setting a, an ambitious interim target? Because they can't get away with not having one. Um, you know, it's all, all very well to say net zero by 2050, but that means action quite quickly and uh, I guess the the way they'll handle that is to name a 2035 target. They Look, I expect they'll wait for the government to uh, lay their cards down, which will be in the lead up to the Glasgow summit in November, where we'll find out whether the government's just going to stick with its Tony Abbott numbers of 26 to 28% uh, emissions reduction by 2030 uh, or whether the government's going to go a little further than that. I don't think it'll be a lot further, but if, if they do a little more, Labor will want to wait and see that before deciding what to do. Look, I, I don't think they'll be overly ambitious, but whatever they do must be consistent with um, whatever the – it has to be plausible in a scientific sense that it is going to put us on the pathway to net zero by 2050. Otherwise, they'll be laughed out of town. They know that. They've got to come up with something that is plausible. So, you know, I expect it will be something more than the government, but not as much more that we're going to find Anthony Albanese and the, the question Bill Shorten faced, unable to answer the, the questions that kept on coming and coming and coming about what's it going to cost. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, there'll, there'll be something more than the government is my expectation. They have no incentive to move too far out from the government because once they do, then they're suddenly accountable and they're not even the government. And yeah. that was the mistake they made last time. Everyone focused on what Labor would do as a government. No one assessed what the government had done as a Well, I, I, I agree with that, although I don't think the target that they announced last year was a mistake, uh, last election was a mistake. I think it was poorly communicated, and I remember the press conference the uh, opposition leader gave in Adelaide where uh, this became first became an issue in the campaign and it exposed a political problem. The question was, what is your target going to cost in terms of growth to the economy? 
Uh, you couldn't and answer it. I think yeah. there were arguments, you know, there were answers to put there. It's just the opposition hadn't really worked out what they should And they're hard things to do from opposition, to Maria's point. I mean, they, they, you know, similarly with the tax debate as well, these are much harder to do and defend oh, yeah. and, and argue from opposition. Well, they yeah, are, but you do need to have modeling you do, exercises. You do. I mean, that was a that's a big values question that one about climate yeah. change. And I think, uh, I think in the aggregate of policy they took to the twenty nineteen election, there was too much. There was too much detail, and I think certain parts of that policy suite just should not have been proposed from opposition at all. And particularly, I'd put into that category franking credits, which I think was too complicated, uh, too technical. And in conjunction with everything else, just added to this whole sense of it being unwieldy. But I think as yeah. a question of values um, and as a, of credible economic policy in the longer term, Australia needed to name an ambitious target and I think had every right to expect that a Labor government would be proposing a 2030 target that would be significantly better than the 26. I call it 26% rather than 26 to 28 because I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, I mean, they would they would accept no. success by 26%, which yeah. is half of what the government, uh, half of what the rest of the world is now aiming at. Yeah, just quickly another thought on Anthony Albanese. You know, the policy questions are all important. One other thing that he's done in personnel, I, I think, when he shifted roles, Mark Butler and Chris Bowen swapped them from health and, and mm. climate. Um, I remember at the time being really sceptical about that and thinking, you know, this is a capitulation, putting someone from the right, Chris Bowen, into the climate role and taking out Mark Butler from the left, a capitulation to the likes of Joel Fitzgibbon and so on, and, and, and wondered whether this was a real show of weakness from Anthony Albanese. I've got to say, uh, watching the way both uh, Butler and, and Bowen have conducted themselves in those roles, I think this is was actually uh, quite an inspired move from Anthony masterful. Albanese. Masterful, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, actually, it's actually worked well, uh, you know, and, yes, you can argue about the, the policy positioning, but in terms of internal management, he's managed to keep that. I mean, when was the last time we read front pages about Joel Fitzgibbon and the Otis Group and all these sort of things? I'm not saying they won't come back as a problem at some point, but right now he seems to be managing that, that internal dynamic, which all leaders face, but he does seem to be managing it quite well. I think what is most interesting about Anthony Albanese is that we actually don't know what he's going to do. And given we don't know what the world is going to look like in, in six months' time, this is either pure genius or, you know, like something we'll be talking about in 2022 about like, oh, you know, they didn't plan anything, they didn't set out any roadblocks. But I think that's kind of the point is that it's it's just – we d- we don't know what the world is is going to look like um, by Christmas, um, let alone when we sort of expect this this election to be. I, I do think that Anthony Albanese is um, quite a skilled opposition leader. Like he has played um, a pretty poor hand uh, quite quite well, all things um, considered. You know, he's, he's been he's locked out of national debates. Uh, he's faced uh, two calamitous, you know, once in a century. Um, disasters, which you know, generally produce rally around the flag effects, and he has done um, a good job of making um, a, a political party that has sort of excelled at um, moving the show on and not taking responsibility for the actions of their own government um, to be more about you know the actions and 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 uh, you know for successes and failures of of their own um, government. You know he's done well to kind of keep his powder dry. Just so imagine, had, yeah, just just yeah. imagine if he had been included in that national cabinet, how different yeah. things might have been. I I actually think it, it turned out to be a gift 
to Anthony Albanese because it's allowed him to run the you had two jobs line to poke all sorts of holes in the vaccine rollout, the quarantine failures and so on. How would he have been able to do all this if Morrison had let him in the door of that national cabinet? Yeah, it's a good question. Exactly. And and I, I guess that's sort of it circles us right back to the beginning, which is, you know, like why why is Scott Morrison in this position in the first place where he's, you know, got to make this really bold move to get out of his hole? It's because he decided to run the vaccine rollout from the federal government level at the initially, um, when they don't really have the government capability to do that and and the government bungled its basic supply kind of issue and then Change positions many times on this, and so yeah, but it um, might work. It might work. It I mean, might if, work. if if he's the hope guy, and Albanese's still stuck in debating uh, the, the vaccine problems and so on of of you know the past six months, uh, it, it might work. It might go horribly wrong, but it might work. It, it comes back to that risk that we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, and we've seen Morrison, uh, you know, buying. Uh, acquiring vaccines now at a at an enormous rate, you know, eighty five million um, Moderna, or was it uh, Pfizer? There was just, you know, there's already fifty million, fifty one million Novavax ordered. There's as much AstraZeneca as we can basically make. Um, you know, the, it's 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 really quite astonishing uh, the rate at which vaccines are being bought for late twenty one. And then 22, 23, all of which, by the way, is, is, is an acknowledgement that there will be a booster shot at some point. Uh, and that's possible that that will be part of the, uh, the, uh, the, the political frame going into the election as well. Um, and, and probably onwards after that with, you know, annual or, or, uh, or at least periodic uh, booster shots. So it's a, it's a problem that's not going to go away. Who dares wins? <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's right. Just look, we, we have to go, uh, but a, a, a final uh, observation from each of you on on the question of, of women in the election frame because if we think about the way 2021 started, it was disastrous for the government, allegations of endemic sexism and misogyny and, of course, uh, you know, sexual assault even uh, in some cases. Uh, we've seen ministers... Uh, shifted sideways or demoted um, over over that. The issue's been kind of swamped by, well, as have most issues really, by the pandemic. But um, I wonder whether either of you think that will also affect the uh, the political dynamic, uh, particularly the possibility of fewer women voting for the coalition. I think that I don't know. Uh, to, is, is my honest answer. Uh, that said, though, you know, the last election um, was decided by, you know, small numbers of votes in um, seats around the country. And, uh, and I do think that, you know, whilst we look at these big national trends, um, that I think the seat-by-seat dynamics of the next election will be really important because people's lived experiences of the pandemic are really shaped by where they live. Mm. And in the case of Sydney, where there are lots of seats um, and where, you know, New South Wales will be an important battleground for the government. Um, It depends on which LGA you live in. And I can imagine that there are many women who are furious that they are, you know, um, having to manage the the childcare of their children, their schooling and trying to work or giving up work. And I, I can see that potentially being um, highly motivating for certain cohorts of women. 
Yeah, and I I agree with that. Uh, and similarly, I, I don't know either. Uh, Labor will have to tread a little carefully, I think, in trying to remind voters of this particular issue, um, barring any you know fresh incident um, that, that, that might bring the issue back to prominence. Uh, I, I just think that they'll need to be careful about any um, perception that they're politicising these issues too much. Uh, but I think Marie's right on the economic security front for women. This remains unfinished business. I suspect the government, it's got its uh, Women's um, Security Summit, and that includes economic security, they're coming up in a, just over a week's time. Uh, so they will have some ideas coming forward. I think they'll need to act on those ideas. I do think this is unfinished business they'll need to address in some way before the election. But how much it influences the vote, uh, really hard to know. Well, they are all very interesting issues and dynamics all in play. Thanks so much to Maria Tafaga and to David Spears. Thanks for being with us on Democracy Sausage, you two. Pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's it for this week. Look forward to talking to you again next week from Democracy Sausage. Bye. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.